Creative Babble. In the last two episodes, you heard from Michael Basil, a privacy expert whose job is to make people disappear. But who is he? I still don't know much about him. Why is he so passionate about privacy? And how exactly does he make these people disappear? I'm gonna do my best to try to figure this guy out. It turns out Michael Basil eats his own dog food. He's pretty much an invisible man. I have no idea where he lives, what he looks like. I've spent hours talking to Michael these past few months, hoping that he would slip up or let out a detail about his private life, but nope. This guy is locked down and takes his privacy very seriously. You would think that it would be impossible to have a conversation with him, but actually I find him kind of approachable. In fact, we talk all the time, through an encrypted chat application, of course. So who is Michael Basil, and why is he so obsessed with extreme privacy? Let's start at the beginning. Well, not the very, very beginning. Let's just pick it up when Michael Basil decides to become a beat cop. I was hired as a police officer when I turned 21. I, I was young. I, I didn't know what I wanted. What kind of things are you doing as a street cop? I was working a beat. Uh, I was assigned to a patrol shift. So everything from shoplifting to homicides, that's what I did every day shift or night shift. But how does a street cop end up becoming a hacker? And I don't mean to use the term hacker loosely. The expression comes from MIT in the 1960s. At MIT, it was said that there were two types of students. Someone who attended class regularly, who goes by the book. And then there were the hackers. Hackers never go to class. They sleep all day and rarely play by the rules. Hackers are always looking around the problem in order to find a solution. And that kind of fits the way I see Michael Basil. I can't imagine Michael Basil only patrolling the streets in order to find a bad guy. Oh no. He's the type of guy that's going to use every tool available in order to make that arrest. And that's exactly how he got his start. And how did you make that transition from being a beat cop to cyber crimes? This is the late 90s. We were starting to get complaints from parents about their kids being online on America Online or Yahoo chat rooms. And these kids would be contacted by men trying to get them to have sex or send pictures or do bad things. There was a moment in the late 90s where cybercrime really started to kick in and computer crimes were happening. No one knew anything about it. You had a lot of these old school cops that didn't even have a computer. And back in those days, if you knew a little bit about technology, you were the expert. Before I knew it, I was promoted. I became a cybercrime detective. We have our mental image of what a cop is, and then we have our mental image of what a nerd or a geek or a tech guy is. Sure. And you kind of straddle the line between the two. Oh yeah, I, I was I was nerding out every night. Uh, I was way more into technology and computers than I was into law enforcement or any job I would be going after. Keep in mind, this is the 1990s. The internet was just in its infancy. Today, it's much easier to find whatever you're looking for. I didn't have Google. I didn't have the ability to just 
put a person's name in and find some people search website. But I could start going through their history. If I had a suspect username on Yahoo, I knew I could start looking through other places he's posted on Yahoo, other places he's used that email address, such as Usenet groups. And I could start to piece all that together. And every single time I had a suspect like that, they would slip up somewhere and say something about the city they lived in or the job they had or the car they drove. When they did that, I could then start to get just enough ammunition to say, I can now track down this person and find out who they are. Way before the show To Catch a Predator and Chris Hansen, Michael Basil was setting up stings trying to lure pedophiles before they did any damage. I was finding men trying to meet young girls, like 14-year-old girls on the internet. But one day, his sting operation nabbed him a powerful man. And with that arrest came a lot of unwanted attention. We were portraying children online. Sometimes we would have actual children give us, or the parents of actual children give us their accounts and say they're getting bombarded by these men trying to meet them. I had just arrested a few people, and one of them was a well-known politician. I didn't know who it was. When I transported him, there was national camera crews following us around. I've read the news reports about this incident. Michael Basil's name was plastered everywhere. We're not going to get into who the politician is, because it's not actually relevant to the story. However, this was the moment that caused Michael Basil to disappear. And I was reading the online edition of the newspaper following what was going on, and there's an article about how this politician tried to arrange for sex with a child but got caught by a cop. Then the politician held a live press conference and said he was innocent. And he accused me of setting him up live on TV. Now, I didn't think much of this until hours later in an online forum, there were people on his side, his fans, that were saying that I had set him up and this was a shame and bad police work. And one person made the comment, if we eliminate this cop, then there will be no trial. Like, what do you mean if I was eliminated? And then people started talking back and forth about how this cop shouldn't be a cop and we need to get him fired. We need to get rid of his job. And then some people took it a little bit too far and they would say things like, well, if he was dead, he can't testify. Michael Basil went online and searched his own name. And the second hit was my home address, which shocked me. And it was because my home was in my name, my property taxes were in my name. And because that stuff's public data, websites were starting to acquire that at the time. I could easily find out where I lived online. And that just, it shocked me and I wasn't sure what to do. That was probably the day I started at least thinking about privacy. Did you know he was a prominent politician or did that come after? I knew nothing about him at the time. He was using a screen name that had did not have his name in it. In this specific case, we were portraying a 14-year-old girl online. We were chatting as that 14-year-old girl. These men were very blatant about what they were doing. Within three to four lines of a text communication, they were specifically asking for sex or to purchase sex from that child. You might ask them, what kind of car will you be driving? I'll meet you down the road. I don't want my mom to find out. And when they showed up, in his case, he had the money in his hand and he was ready to meet that child and we placed him in custody. Many months later, he did plead guilty and he confessed that he lied about the press conference and that he did do the things he was accused of. When that case happened, there were no specific death threats, but it pretty much made it clear that if somebody did want to go after you, it wouldn't be that hard to find you. Well, at that point, I just simply knew I was exposed and I really didn't have a solution. My home had a mortgage on it and the, the bank wasn't going to change the name on the mortgage. They weren't going to change the name on the, the title or the loan or anything like that. So I didn't have a lot of power. I was confident that I was exposed, my home address was exposed, and I can't change that. You can't take it back. Anyone who wants to find him can. 
This very moment changed Michael's life forever. It was the catalyst that drives his passion for privacy. After the sex thing involving the politician, the FBI recruited Michael and assigned him to the FBI Cybercrime Task Force. And about 2004 is when the FBI started a cybercrime task force in my area. And they reached out to me and said, would you want to come over here and help us start this up and be part of this? Which, of, of course, is like, yes, I would love to do that. So you worked for the FBI for about 10 years? Yeah, about 10 years. When did you decide to leave? There were a lot of opportunities I wanted to take advantage of, but I couldn't because I had a boss at my full-time job saying, get back here. You can't have the time off. You're taking too much time off. And that was a problem. Then Hollywood came a knocking. It was the producers for a show about a computer programmer who moonlights as a vigilante hacker. I had NBC interested in having me work on this TV show idea. The show was Mr. Robot, and Michael Basil couldn't pass up the opportunity. It doesn't make sense for me to keep doing the government career. It makes more sense for me to try it on my own. Michael Basil left his government career behind and started consulting on the show. When NBC agreed to do Mr. Robot, they were looking for technical advice and looking for someone to help write the technical scenes. I remember I got the call one day direct from Sam Esmail, who created the show, and we had a long conversation that seemed to be a good fit. And he just said, well, do you want to do it? And I said, sure. And we, we made Mr. Robot. In some ways, Michael is a lot like Elliot, the main character on Mr. Robot. I kind of walked that line a bit, that gray hat, black hat line. I always like to see what I could get away with. How far can I push these methods? When he wasn't working for Hollywood, Michael Basil worked as a consultant helping government employees live anonymously. And that's how it all started. Since then, Michael lives an unconventional and slightly strange life. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Michael Basil's eccentric lifestyle. But most importantly, we're gonna show you how you too can disappear. I'm Javier Leyva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Let's talk about a day in the life of Michael Basil. Michael Basil lives an extreme private life. <laughs> and the word extreme is an understatement, right? How would you describe yourself and the way you live? To me, I live normally. I, I don't hide in the mountains. I, I don't have a, a cabin in the woods. I, I hide from digital records. I don't want all of these companies who I don't even know who they are or who runs them to be able to collect and then sell my personal information. I don't think they have that right. Legally, they can do it, but I don't have to participate. How would your friends and your family describe you and, and your lifestyle? 
eccentric, maybe. I'll give you an example. My When my sister got married, she knew that I did not want to be in any photos which would be posted online, and she took great care to help me conduct that. Let's talk about everyday things that we do. How do you use a cell phone? I don't bring a phone into my home. If a phone does come into my home, it's in what's called a Faraday bag. Its signals are being blocked because I don't want my cell phone to connect to a cell phone tower near my home, which identifies where I live. I've put so much work into making myself invisible and making my clients invisible. I don't want to throw it all away because a cell phone's just every five seconds saying, hey, I'm right here. This is where the guy lives. For me, a cell phone is something I use when I travel, when I'm out. It's not something I use at my home. But I mean, some people are going to listen to this and be like, Michael, you're paranoid. I mean, sure. who has actual access to the cell phone company data and who's going to locate you? Like, what are the dangers, really? I would have agreed with that many years ago. I, I can't now. $300 to a bounty hunter will let you ping a phone, or at least at the time would let you ping a phone and get an exact location. Every telecom provider, the T-Mobiles, the Sprints, the AT&T, all of them know where your devices are at all times. All of them know who, who own the devices. If you have access to that data, either through a rogue employee, a bribed, corrupt employee, or legitimate ways by paying people who have third-party access, you can get that data. And anyone that says, oh, that doesn't happen, it happens all the time. Why take the chance? Now, for my clients, that's life or death. If their tech-savvy former lover is able to bribe an employee to identify where a phone is, then all of my hard work is down the drain. This is why I have a very strict cell phone policy. And you mentioned the Faraday bag. Describe to people what a Faraday bag is. Faraday bag is, in my use, a small pouch that is lined with a material which blocks radio frequencies. My phone has a connection to a cell phone tower. It has Bluetooth. It has Wi-Fi. It has all these wireless connections that can talk to other places. When you put that phone into a Faraday bag and seal it, those communications can no longer happen. Signals can't come in. Signals can't go out. If my phone is in my car in a Faraday bag, I know it's not communicating with some cell phone tower and documenting every five seconds all night where I live. So, in other words, you're saying that your cell phone has never been on near or in your house, right? Absolutely. You go out to dinner. You're having dinner, and now it's time to go home. What do you do? Talk about that process of, of returning to your house. I have a certain spot that I would never disclose. It's, uh, it's an intersection, which I always get caught up in some traffic. And when I'm at that stoplight, that is my key. That's my, my sign to drop my phone in the Faraday bag, and then I finish my drive home. The next day, when I leave for whatever reason, when I reach that same intersection on the opposite side and I get stuck at that same light, that's my time. I can take my phone out of that bag, plug it into my charger, turn it back on. If you are tracking me through cell phones, you are going to know that every day I'm disappearing at this intersection. That's a start for you, but you don't. You have five different ways you could go, and then you have five more different ways you can go. And unless you're following me, you're probably just not going to find my home. When you get home, what if you needed to make a phone call? What do you do? That's where I have my iPod Touch. I have a headset plugged into it. I have all my communications apps. I have my apps which can use cell phone numbers. I have my secure communications apps. And right now, I'm talking to you through a secure communication service from my iPod Touch. The iPod Touch has no cell communications. It has no ability to connect to a cell phone tower. And it has a different Apple ID. So there's really no direct communication. Someone can say they are the same person. Why don't you just put your phone in airplane mode? 
sure you could but you've got a couple of problems one even when your phone's in airplane mode it, it is still doing different things which can ping or query data people say just remove your sim card remove your sim card from your cell phone and now it, you don't have that connection to your carrier well the problem is even with a no sim card in a phone you'll notice you can still make 911 calls which means the phone is still connecting to cell phone towers which means the phone is still triangulating your location at all times i know i'm starting to sound paranoid but these are legitimate threats against my clients I don't trust airplane mode. The main reason I don't trust it is most phones, when you have the phone in airplane mode and then you apply an update to your operating system, when the reboot happens after that update, and some people apply them automatically, your phone reboots out of airplane mode with your cell, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth connections enabled. That single connection would be on record forever with the cell phone company of where that phone was at at 2 a.m. when the reboot happened after an update. You can never take that back. Do I think that airplane mode could suffice? It's very possible, and I'm sure I would be okay I won't take that chance for my clients, so I can't take it from me either. All right, so there are other ways to track you. Let's say I see your driver's license plate. I could probably look you up and find out where you live. Talk about how do you protect yourself on the road? When I'm on private property, I tend to remove my license plate. Not every five seconds, but if I'm going to park at an airport for a week, I don't leave my license plate on my car and it's not required to leave your license plate on your car. The license plate only needs to be on your car when you are traveling on a public roadway. I yank it off because they're all connected through a 20 pound or 40 pound pull magnets that will allow me to remove them quickly. Well, what about license plate readers and tolls? Yeah, it's awful because everywhere we go now, we are having our license plates not only read, but recorded forever. When you park your car in a parking garage at a sporting event, your license plate is going to get scanned several times. That scan will then store that forever. And his paranoia may be justified. Did you know that some McDonald's drive throughs will scan your license plate reader in order to offer you a personalized menu? Now, to a lot of people, that sounds silly and why do i care why do you care if mcdonald's knows that you really like big macs i care because where does it stop if i pay now with a credit card in my real name but my license plate was in an alias name now there's a record that ties the two together i don't like that michael basil has a telephone number for every occasion i have nine different phone numbers if I'm going to call a local business about something, I don't want to call for my true cell phone number because now they have a connection to that and they are likely to add that to their own records, which then gets sold to third parties, which then ends up being on people search websites that now have your cell phone number. So why do you have nine numbers? What are they for? I have nine because that's the limit they'll give me. If I could have a hundred, I'd have a hundred. So the nine for me is one's me, my true name, my friends and family. And it's for my, my friends that refuse to use secure communications. All of them assume that's my cell phone number. And then I have some related to my home. I have a, a profile with a phone number that I only use in reference to my home. Orders, deliveries, uh, anything that uh, might be connected to a purchase that I make involving my home. There are, there are some that I use for international. I have a Canadian number for Canadian stuff. I have a UK number for some UK stuff. And I I have a New York number for all my clients in New York. I have an LA number for all my clients in LA. This way, if one number is exposed, the other number is not affected. So where does Michael Basil store all his crucial data? You'll never guess. I've had hollow nickels since I was young. They take two nickels and they fabricate them into a way that they pop into each other with a hollow space in between. And with a nickel, that hollow space happens to hold a micro SD card. You can get a half terabyte micro SD card for a couple hundred bucks. 
And what I like to do is my crucial data, I would encrypt it onto a micro SD card to where you can't get into anything without a password and some two-factor authentication. I would then put that micro SD card in this hollow nickel, which looks just like a nickel when it's closed. But if I put a micro SD card in a hollow nickel and then I hide that hollow nickel behind an electrical outlet that just happens to look like it fell, if someone tears on the wall and sees that, they're just gonna say, oh, nickel, and they're not going to get freaked out. It's easy for me to hide them in friends' homes, which sounds so mean and like a bad friend, but it saved my butt once. Uh, I destroyed data one time, uh, and unintentionally, I just did something stupid, and my password manager database was destroyed, and I was in trouble because I was not at home. I couldn't get my backup from home, and I was able to call my friend and say, you're going to think this is ridiculous, <laughs> but go to your bathroom, take off with a flathead screw. There's a cover to your power outlet. When you do that, there's going to be a nickel behind there. When you take that nickel and tap it on your sink. It's going to open up. There's a micro SD card. Put that in your computer and then call me from that area. And it saved my butt. I mean, if anything ever happens to your home, like a fire or whatever, there's a, a different location where your data lives, right? That's so vital. And if your home burns down, blown away in a tornado, or just thieves come in and take all of your stuff, you have nothing. When family or friends want to visit your house, how do you keep that private? The easiest way is visit them. I travel a lot. When I visit family, I go visit the family and I just solve that problem right there. But I know that my clients can't do that. I have several clients who have a mandatory Faraday bag rule. If when their family comes over, it is mandatory that they have to put their phones in a Faraday bag. Uh, they can't use them. That sounds so strict and ridiculous, but imagine if you have done all the work to make your home invisible. You've done everything right, and then you have someone come over that takes a selfie in front of your house, tags the location, puts it on Facebook. You've unraveled all that because Every good OSINT investigator I know will find that data and now know immediately where you live. You've ruined everything. If you need to use the internet, here's a laptop. Here's a Linux laptop that has full internet access. It's on a VPN, on a guest Wi-Fi in the house. Do whatever you want. That typically works. Do you really need to have your family at your house every weekend? I know that sounds harsh, but for someone running from that person trying to kill them or that person that's doing a lot of threats, that's justified to me. Would you say that you're a guinea pig for a lot of the techniques that you use? Absolutely. I have to be. I don't want to ever test something with a client because it might fail. I will fail. I will learn my lessons. And then once I know what works, I will then and hopefully only then apply it to a client. What is it that drives this passion for privacy? If I don't live it, I'm a fraud and people simply should not hire me. I have wealthy clients that hire PIs to investigate me before they're willing to let me into their bubble to help solve their problems. I enjoy it when a PI says we can't find him. I sleep well at night just knowing I'm, I'm a difficult target. I don't think people are coming after me. I don't have that paranoid mindset. I don't think that there's a drone above my house right now. You live an extreme private life, but is it that black and white? Do you, do you have to go all in or is there some in between? No, there, it's not all black and white. It, it can be for some because if I tell clients, okay, from this day on, you can never use a social network. You can't email anyone. You'll never have a cell phone. You're going to go live in the woods. I don't get hired. So I, I, I respect there has to be a balance between privacy and life. So how exactly does Michael Basil disappear? 
We're going to walk you through it. In fact, if you're curious about and want to learn more about each step of the process, I highly suggest that you get a copy of Michael Basil's book called Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear. I have a link in the show notes. He goes into great detail on each step. We're going to highlight the main steps here. Step one, if you want to disappear, you need a shelter. Let's say you have a victim of abuse and you're trying to find a safe place for them. The first step is always just temporary safe housing. Uh, typically, we are very reactive. Something happens and now someone's in danger, we have to relocate them. That's always going to be temporary lodging. It could be a hotel. It could also be an extended stay hotel. And we get them in that place, of course, not in their name. So I can just make a phone call and say, uh, I've got an employee coming. I can give them whatever name I want, put it on my corporate account, and we get them in the safe place. If, if it's truly a dangerous situation, I might myself or someone in my team actually escort them and get them in so they don't even have to go log in. And then how long do you recommend, you know, your clients stay in this temporary housing? We don't set a time limit to it, but we do tell them you should stay here until you know what you want to do. Do you want to go somewhere else? Or what are our options? What financially, what are our options of buying you a new place or getting you a new place or renting you a new place? So it's really a matter of when do you feel comfortable that you've made the right decision for you and we can now leave this temporary safe house? Let's say a prosecutor receives a death threat and they just need to live off the grid. What should they do? Well, it turns out that Michael Basil found the solution for that in the most unlikely of places. I was at a campground and I was walking around the campground just killing some time and I saw a lot of RVs and all of them had South Dakota license plates and that just kind of piqued my interest. Why? And I actually started talking to one of the people and this woman explained to me that South Dakota is, allows you to be a, a nomad. You can domicile in that state. We don't actually live there, but we legally call it our state of residence. And we hit the road. And that's when my, my ears just perked up. I, I immediately saw this as an opportunity of okay, well, how do I leverage this? You don't have to put your home address on your driver's license. Explain to me how that works. And that really started the ball rolling. What is the South Dakota Nomad Residency Program? It is very targeted for RV people who follow the sun. They travel year round. They live a mobile life. These states allow you to claim yourself uh, as a resident. That way you can still get mail. You can still have a driver's license. You can still file your taxes. You can do all the legal things you need to do, yet you might not have a physical structure which would normally tie yourself to a specific area. It's a place to legally call home, even if you don't physically live there. Let's say when I retire, my wife and I, we just want to hit the road and travel the country. Why couldn't we just forward our mail to our kid's address or a, a, a friend's address or get a P.O. box? Well, you can do that, but then you have the issue of where does your driver's license come back to? Uh, how do you, what's your official address with the government and the IRS and all those things that want that physical address and not just a P.O. box? That's where the, the whole idea of nomad residency can be beneficial is I can have more of an official mailbox and I can have something that I can put on my driver's license. I have something that I can claim as my home, even though I don't have a home. You know, you're leveraging the nomad residency to protect your clients, but can criminals 
leverage this to hide? Sure, anyone could. And that's where I always have to be careful of what I recommend and what I tell people to do and what not to do. I think be a stretch for a criminal to go this far for privacy when they're probably just going to live completely off grid, completely off cash. And I just don't think there's a huge market of criminals using nomad residency to stay private because there's always a trail. If, if the government wanted to find me, they can find where my mail is delivered. Is being a nomad a foolproof way of disappearing? No, not at all. It's really just a convenience. A lot of my clients, they need to disappear for safety reasons. So basically, they have the option of becoming a nomad, maybe even temporarily, to give them some breathing space. This happens a lot with my clients under any kind of immediate physical threat. They will become a nomad, and now that gives us some time to figure out what are we doing next. And how about you? Are you a nomad? I am a nomad. Uh, I, it took me a while to want to publicly admit that, but I've been a nomad for a long time. I travel constantly. I, I am domiciled in a state that allows nomad registration, and it allows me some pretty good privacy. When is it not appropriate to become a nomad? There are many ways. And the one I always want to point out is uh, I get clients who will say to me, I want to do this nomad thing in order to have a driver's license in another state and all these different benefits. But yet I want to live in, say, California. I'm going to work at a job in California. I own a home in California. I have a car full time in California and all these other connections. I have kids in school in California. Being a nomad is not appropriate for that. It's probably even illegal for that because now you are taking revenue away from California or New York or wherever you're actually living. Nomad residency is for people who are going to move around a lot. The clients that take advantage of being a nomad are people who are in danger and they need to get away. But that doesn't seem like a permanent solution. Talk about the, the clients that need a permanent place to call home. How do they go about doing that without making their information public again? The number one thing is you never associate your name with that home. Anytime that name is attached to whatever house is gained, that is going to be exposed online within months. And now all of your hard work is down the drain. I've helped people buy houses that from day one all the way until moving in, they never gave anyone their real names. So walk me through it. Let's say somebody, one of your clients, a victim or a government employee or celebrity wants to purchase a new home anonymously, how do they go about doing that? I mean, from the process of even talking to a realtor to actually signing closing documents. Well, I'll cheat a bit and I will say, let's assume that they're paying cash for the home, which I know is unrealistic for most people. A lot of the people I deal with are wealthy and they just say, I've got a bunch of cash. I used to say, never give out your name and refuse to give out your name, but that doesn't go over so well. When, when I'm talking to a real estate agent and they say, what's your name? And I say, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> that just starts a really bad, just a bad situation. So I usually just make up an alias. Say, I might be Michael, but maybe I'm Michael Johnson. Once the home is found, I highly recommend putting a home in the name of a trust. We have a trustee, which is not the client that we're protecting. And that trustee is going to be the person who digitally signs all the closing paperwork. Then a cashier's check or a wire can be issued from a bank account in the name of that trust. It can all be done via DocuSign with the exception of a handful of documents which need to be notarized. I've participated in multiple closings and multiple house purchases where the true owner of the house never once signed anything or put their name on any piece of paper. So why a trust? Well, you need some kind of vehicle to own the home. Uh, anytime you put a home in your name 
and the property taxes are in your name, your name is public record. It's online. So now almost immediately, your name is attached to your home on the internet and all of these people search websites devour that data in bulk to basically announce to the world where you live. Think of Michael Basil as a magician. In order to disguise his client's true identity, he has to perform some misdirection. Buying a house under a trust is like a hat trick. The hat is the trust and the client is the rabbit. Michael Basil hands the internet an empty hat for inspection. And when no one's looking, he pulls the client right out of the hat. It's a classic sleight of hand trick. And when you say you have to find the trustee, explain to me that process and, and how do you strategically pick somebody? It's different for everyone. For celebrities, it might be an attorney. For domestic violence victims, it might be a family member that's not extremely tight with them and has a different last name with them. For some people, it might be a trusted friend. A trustee doesn't own the trust and a trustee does not own the home. A trustee just has the power and the authority to sign on behalf of the home. But the trustee, a lot of times, is just a temporary person who is going to basically be the public face of that home. And again, a lot of times it could just be an attorney. So why doesn't everybody do this? Well, there's a, several reasons. I think the main reason is financial. So if you have a loan on your home, which almost all of us do, a lot of loan companies don't want the title of the home put into a trust. You can absolutely put the title of your home in a trust, even with a loan, but the bank is always going to, going to know who really owns that loan. As far as why doesn't everyone do it, I think it's just, it can, it can seem complicated. And for most people, it probably seems unnecessary until they're on the front page of the paper and the media is hounding them outside their door for a comment on something that they didn't even mean to happen. What kind of features are you looking for in a house to protect your clients? It's extremely important, especially for victims of domestic violence. I want them to feel safe. I want them to be safe. There are many considerations. One is I insist on an attached garage, somewhere you can put your car, hide your car, get to your car without being noticed. You could pack up your car without being noticed. So a lot of it's just safety. Overall crime rate, the neighbors, really it's, it's the vibe. What's going on in this neighborhood? Would it be better for somebody to live in a remote place or in a more densely populated area? For the clients who are truly running away from a physical threat, they've been the victim of some type of physical attack, I do prefer them to be remote. If someone's walking in front of your home and you own five acres, you notice right away and you are aware of it. You know, everything you've talked about so far sounds really practical if you're just a really rich single person, but that's not the reality, right? It's hard. One thing that can help in those situations is renting versus owning. Uh, typically, a lot of my clients who don't have the ability to pay for a house in cash, they might not even have the ability to get a loan and to get into a house right away on their own. Some of my clients are leaving relationships, marriages where they were abused and they don't have that financial ability to go out on their own right away. It can be a benefit in a way to rent because we can control a lot of the exposure. The home is not in the person's name. The taxes are not in the person's name. A lot of these people have families and, and it's not just them. How do you deal with that complexity of adding children and spouses? Children bring in all kinds of problems. Does the school want proof of residency? And if they do, I promise you they will release that. And how do you get around the school proof of residency? What I always have parents do is 
typically find a place that has a school which isn't extremely scrutinous on the residency, make sure that you have a UPS box or something like that within the boundaries of where that school serves. Make sure that you physically live within the boundaries of where that school serves. That answers that part of it. But I mean, kids are kids and they're constantly on their devices. They're surfing the web and constantly making every moment of their lives public. How do you deal with that? It's hard. And sometimes I don't. Uh, it, it involves a conversation with the parent and with the children usually. And it's up to that parent to decide what level of crazy do I want to go with my kid? We don't want to say this kid can't have friends. This kid can't have friends over. So we have to have the conversation of what are you willing to expose? What are you not willing to expose? There's no easy answer for this. How, how do you recommend your clients to pay for things? I use a service called privacy.com, which allows you to make as many virtual debit cards as you want. You can put any name on them you want. The money is extracted from your actual checking account. So you're paying for it, but you can be anyone you want. You talked about buying a home either purchasing a home or renting a home to live anonymously, but vehicles are also very easily tied to your name. So how do you get around driving in your own car without people finding out who you are and where you live? For almost all my clients, their vehicle is registered to a trust or an LLC. Uh, it's still theirs. They own it. They bought it. But the, the registration itself, say a, a police officer runs your plate, it will come back to the business or the trust. As you drive down the road, there are stationary and mobile devices which are scanning all the license plates and storing where they were. You're more likely to get documented where you travel based on your license plate than where you live. What are some of the issues that you run into or your clients run into when trying to purchase a vehicle? When you go buy a vehicle from uh, Joe on some online site and you meet him and you swap title for cash, you it, that's easy. You're just giving him cash and he doesn't care who you are. So you're fine there. The dealership is where you get into troubles. There are some laws, some federal laws that require dealerships to identify who's buying a car. The dealerships are required by law to make sure that they are not selling a car to someone listed on this site of terrorism suspects. The idea is they want to make sure that you're not a terrorist from another country. The biggest hurdle buying a vehicle at a dealership is simply not telling them who you are. And that's just because the ID was a blocker? Once you say, I'm, I'm not going to let you scan and keep a copy of my driver's license because I'm buying a car in cash, they become resistant, they become scrutinous, and they don't want to deal with you. However, if you approach the sale from the beginning under the premise of, I own a company. Uh, here's my LLC. Here's all the papers that show that I own this company or that this company exists. I need to buy some vehicles. I usually always maybe phrase it as there's potential for more than one vehicle, get them excited. And I need to start getting some pricing. And once you set that up from the beginning that you're buying it under a business name, there's much less scrutiny when you arrive. And even something as simple as test driving a car would probably present a challenge, right? If you walk into a dealer and say, I'd like to test drive a car, 20 years ago, that meant, let me grab some keys and I'll meet you in the lot. Today, it means come over here, sit down, let's fill out some paperwork, let's get your social, let's get a copy of your driver's license, let's find out where you live, where do you work. Before you ever get into a car, they have collected everything they want to know about you, then they'll let you go start to look at the merchandise. The way I do it is I call ahead, I start a rapport, and I start talking with them. I then might say, okay, I'll be there at noon, let's go take a look at some cars. Then I don't show up until one. I show up late, 
and they aren't actually necessarily expecting me at that time, I walk right into the receptionist and I say, hey, my name is so-and-so, whatever alias I gave, let John know I'm here, I'll be in the lot and have him bring some cars for the 2020 whatevers. And I just walk right out. So you come out and you come to me, Nine times out of 10, that results in test drives without showing an ID or without giving them all of your information. And how do you get around car insurance? Car insurance and home insurance are the two most difficult things to keep anonymous. And you really can't keep them anonymous. We can keep them private. And if you lie about that, that's fraud. There's no way around that. I and mean, I'm okay with that because they don't have my home address anyway. The insurance company absolutely knows that you drive that car, but that doesn't end up on a public website. Let's talk about bad habits. What kind of patterns are people giving away without realizing? It's a constant battle. I have made many mistakes during my quest for privacy. I took my vehicle to a national chain oil change place. I paid with a credit card in my real name. Didn't really just, just didn't think much about it. But when I went in there, they scanned my license plate, they scanned my VIN, they ran it through their system, they sent my insurance company notice of the oil change. I got a letter from my insurance agent saying, we have become aware that your mileage of your vehicle is higher than it should be, we need to switch your plan. And when I asked them, how do you know that? Well, you got an oil change at this place and they told us your mileage, hmm. your VIN, your payment method, and your license plate. We don't really think about getting an oil change could be the thing that unravels all of your hard work. The stuff you keep in your car, the the the, the things that have your name on it, the receipts, the, the things you keep in your dash that you don't think about that can be seen from the outside. That probably doesn't matter to most normal people. If you are running for your life because you have a person that wants you dead, all of this matters. We want to eliminate any patterns of behavior. So we talked about the big life decisions like buying a car or a home, but what about something simple as a wallet or what you keep in your purse? You have alias wallets. Talk to me about that. How does it work? I use alias names all the time. I keep different colored slim wallets in my possession. One color is for the hotel. So when I check into a hotel, I know that I grab the specific colored wallet because it has the alias name I use and the credit card, the secondary credit card in that alias name ready to go. I have the other colored wallet that has my real driver's license and my real passport card and my real credit card. And maybe that comes out when I get pulled over to make sure that I'm not lying to a police officer. All right, now let's talk about hotels. How do you travel anonymously? And there's many ways that people can identify who you are at a hotel. They can try to use the Wi-Fi to figure out last names associated with room numbers, or they can just trick the front desk. And you and I were talking about how realistic is that. Really today, hotels should know they don't give out customer data, but I... I know from experience that's just not how it works. And if you want, I am happy. I will do some calls right now and we can try to find a friend of mine who I, I know what city, I know he's by the airport. I can, I don't know what hotels he's in, but I can, we can try to find him and see if that plays well for the show. Let's see how easy it is for Michael to find his friend. How can I help you? Hey, this is Michael over at Smokehouse. I've got a delivery mm -hmm. coming your way for an Eddie. Do you know if that's an employee or a guest? I just didn't know if that should come to the main or if it actually goes to a guest room. I don't have a room number. Okay. I think that's a guest, but for whatever reason, I don't have that name under my system, in my system. Okay. You don't have a reservation under that name then? Yeah, no one in our system. All right, let's try the next hotel. Thank you for calling. To reach the front desk, please press one. You are being transferred to... Operator. 
Thank you for calling. Dwayne, how can I assist you? Hey, this is Michael over at House. I've got a delivery coming your way for an Eddie Red. Do you know if that's an employee or a guest? That would have to be a guest. Okay. Do, do you, uh, can you confirm that the, they just said it's the hotel across the street and I don't know which one. Do you have a way to confirm that? How do you spell the last name? Don't have that name in-house. Gotcha. Okay. I'll try that one. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay. Maybe this is not as easy as we thought. Good afternoon. Thank you for calling. How can I help you? Hey, this is Michael over at Smokehouse. Uh, I've got a delivery coming your way for an Eddie Red. Do you know if that's an employee or a guest? Uh, that's not an employee. Okay. So it has to be a guest. Can you confirm that? Because they just said it's the hotel across the street and the town both said that he's not there and I don't know where to send my driver. Okay. What was the last name? It's uh, I don't have anybody in my system with that gotcha. name. Okay. Striking out. I'll try again somewhere else. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. But then his persistence paid off. Front desk. This is... Yeah, this is Michael over at House. I have a delivery for an Eddie. I don't know if that's an employee or a guest. Can you tell me where that goes? Um, that appears to be a guest. Okay, and I don't have a room number. Should I just bring it to the front desk, or can you tell me the room number? How? What's the best way to do a delivery over there if I don't know the room number? Um. Well, it looks like that's room four thirty-six. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh huh. Bye. What do we learn? What we learned is hotels will give out customer data. And even in the failures, even the hotels where he wasn't staying, notice that not one hotel said, we can't give out that information. They just said, nope, he's not here. There's no privacy. There's no, there's no unwritten rule or some, something where hotels say, hey, we got your back. We won't tell people where you are. Yeah, they will. In this one, I was pretending to be the food delivery place across the street, which they are probably familiar with. That way, when I call them, it's not a cold call. I would never call a hotel and say, hey, is Javier there? What room is he in? <laughs> but if I say, hey, this is Michael across the street at the, the rib place that we deliver there every night. I got this delivery and I don't know if the guy's there. All of a sudden, there's this trust. It's a social engineering attack where there's a, a trust and a belief that you are who you say you are. Therefore, you are entitled to this information. That's why I use an alias. When I listened to that, I was shocked. I mean, I, I when you told me you were going to do this, I didn't really think you were going to find the guy because it seemed like finding a needle in a haystack. But I was just shocked at how easily hotel people would just give out your information. I cheated a bit. I know the approximate area he's in because I know what he's doing there. But if I have enough time, I could call every hotel in the city. How, based on our test there, they'll all tell me something. So remember, if you have a stalker, they have all the time in the world to come after you. So what are some challenges that maybe we're not thinking about when we want to disappear, like going to the dentist, going to the barber, staying at a hotel, going to a restaurant? Everything. Everything leaves a trail. And every company you go to today is trying to make up revenue by selling your data. You mentioned the dentist. 
practically every dentist. When you go, they are going to enter your name into a third party system, which will start sending you notifications of when your next cleaning is due or maybe a coupon or maybe an, an offer of whitening services. And all that will be maintained by a third party who now has your email, your name, your address and everything. And all of that will be leaked or published or breached or something at some point. 90, 120 days later, I'm on the internet. I can now find where you live. So it's anytime you can pay cash, you pay cash. But there are things like maybe the hotel, maybe the dentist. So what about like buying alcohol when they ask to see your ID? What do you show them? Well, a lot of times when they ask to see your ID, they're going to scan it in their system. A lot of state licenses have your complete name and date of birth and everything on the barcode so that they scan that, that tells their system, hey, this person's old enough that their date of birth says they're over 21, they can have alcohol. And now it can be leaked. What do I do? I show them a passport card. Every time I get a passport, I, I pay the extra 20 bucks. I get a passport card. It's an official government ID. It's got my picture on it. It's got my real name. It's got my real date of birth, but it has no address on it. Now you live anonymously. You live in a home that's purchased through a trust. You have a car that's under an LLC. But what about like buying things on Amazon? Where, where do they send that stuff to? Do they send it to your actual house? I recommend UPS stores have a dedicated place where you can get all of your mail locally, maybe a town away from you, and have your shipments sent there. Amazon to your home, you can. I, I have delivered Amazon products to my own home in an alias name, and I, I guess there's no real harm in that. Anonymous pets. <laughs> How do you keep your pets anonymous? It seems like it shouldn't even be a consideration, right? It's just a dog or a cat. The reality is you're more likely to get exposed of your true home address based on a pet than you are on something you order from Amazon. If I go to the shelter and give them my name and address for the dog I'm about to get, that will almost indefinitely appear online at some point because it's great marketing databases. Shelters and veterinarians make a lot of money uh, by selling your data to marketing companies, especially those that cater to pet owners. It's no coincidence that after you adopt your furry companion, all of a sudden you get bombarded with coupons for dog and cat food. Can you just give them an alias name? It, well, that's hard. Uh, shelters require ID and they require the option to do a home visit to make sure that the dog's okay. And these are good things. I'm not saying that they shouldn't do that, but then that data gets resold. You can give an alias, but most shelters want a copy of your ID. I've even seen a lot of veterinarians. The answer is not so simple. And living with an anonymous pet is doable. However, it involves an alias name and some pretty ethically questionable maneuvering. But Michael Basil says it's necessary. He once had a client whose stalker was able to locate her by calling the local animal shelters. He made up a story saying that he found a lost dog and gave them the name of the woman he was after. And just like that, the animal shelter led the attacker straight to her house. If you truly want to live anonymously, even Fidel has to disappear. But what about your love life? How do Michael Basil's clients find a partner? You don't think about it, but your clients are humans too. And they, this is the way we date now. It's online. We swipe right, we swipe left. I had one client who the, her ex-boyfriend who had been stalking her for over a year found her because of a dating app. She, he had a list of, of places he suspected she could be staying, friends, colleagues. She had this, this idea of places she might be. 
and he used a dating app which uses uh, location information. Basically, he spoofed his GPS on his phone and kept changing his location to these different places he thought she might be, and then he would put that he was looking for a woman her age, and then he would keep swiping, and finally, when he saw her picture on his phone, he could look at the GPS he had set, and he knew that she was within a mile of that GPS, which was her friend's house, and that's when the stalking began again. So. I'm not going to tell someone they they can't date. That's ridiculous. I'm not even going to tell someone that they can't use apps. I'm going to encourage them to avoid the dating applications because they can track where you are at all times. Okay. So dating apps, they're gone. (laughs) They're out. So what do we, what about if you just go to a bar and you just meet somebody, how far does the privacy thing go? Do you give them your real name? Man, I feel like you just started a whole new show. The people I'm usually dealing with are in such a bad situation that dating's not high on their <laughs> list anyway. And they've also probably just left a relationship that was just so toxic and violent that they, would, they won't give anyone their real name anyway. But that does wear off. You, you start to become more comfortable with people. But also, if I protected the person properly, even knowing their names, not going to find out where they live, you know, I was just using dating as an example, but just building relationships. And it almost seems like to me, because I don't live this lifestyle, it almost seems to me that you have created now this hard exterior shell around you. And I'm just trying to envision situations where you're just trying to build friendships and, and, and personal relationships with people. And starting out a relationship under an alias and then that person finding out that they've been duped. I mean, do you get any feedback from your clients about that kind of stuff? Not a whole lot because I think almost all my clients fit into one of two categories. Either they they have their social circle that they're keeping. They have that doesn't change. The other side are usually people that have had to relocate. They are they've got the trauma. They they've had to completely just up in their entire lives because of something bad that happened, those are the ones that are going to have that more hard exterior shell. Let's talk about something that I never even considered when reading your book, but it really shocked me, was you could do everything that you're prescribing to your your clients, but what if you bring in a new life to the world? What happens then? The moment that child is born and you give them a name, doesn't that become public information? The majority of states, birth certificates are public. A lot of states put them online, or at least they have birth certificates from 20 and 30 years ago online. You can just go get all that data and download it in one swoop. There are many things you can do. First, I always encourage clients who are about to have a child, don't overthink this. Don't make it too you know, crazy. Don't name your kid John Doe. But there are some considerations. Does the hospital or wherever you have your child, do they need to know your home address? Chances are they don't. And if they do, they're going to abuse it and it's going to be shared. We talked about buying a home, buying a car, and now your clients eventually will one day want to re-enter the workforce. How do they live anonymously while remaining employed? Getting a job is not the end of privacy. A lot of employers will ask for a lot of details that are probably optional. If you just need to go take a standard job, most employers do not need to know your home address. Have that mailbox, that PO box ready to give them and you're covered. Your employer will absolutely have to know your social security number and your date of birth. There's no getting around that. You're going to have to give that out. I encourage them to get a business, get an LLC that's going to be official for their income and get some kind of side gig, get some kind of even like an Uber type gig, get 
something that you can use the EIN number for your LLC for tax reporting instead of your social security number for tax reporting. Has anybody ever tried to take advantage of your services? A woman was fleeing her ex-husband. She, it was her and the child. He was an abusive man and he'd done all these bad things and she just really needed my help in order to flee from this violent, toxic situation. Long story short, she was a, a bit psychotic and she did not have custody of the kid. She stole the kid and the father, who was the sane one in the relationship, had custody of the kid and she was trying to hide away from him and we were almost about to help her be so invisible he could never find her and so there's there's always multiple sides and it's our job to figure out what's really going on before we do any kind of services we've had numerous people we've had fugitives try to hire us uh, i've had people offer me big bags of cash to make him disappear we vet everyone and if you are a fugitive trying to hire me i will forward your details to the marshals and let them deal with it it turns out that helping people disappear has landed Michael Basil in some big trouble. I've done a lot of things that appear shady. A woman was had been abused by her husband for many years, physically abused. She was in a hospital due to him abusing her, and he would not leave her side uh, because he was afraid she would talk to the police. So the hospital staff was trying to kind of get to her, like, what's going on here? Should we call the police? He was, of course, being the loving husband in the hospital, even though he had broken her jaw and done all these bad things. And the mother of this woman had hired me to try to get her out of the situation. And my thought was, well, I'll just I'll break her out of this hospital. My thought was, well, I'll just I'll kidnap her myself and we'll get her in a safe place. That sounds good on paper until you've got hospital security detaining you and calling the police. And there's a really interesting story in your book about a stalker who was trying to locate the victim and you kind of outsmarted him. Can you tell me that story? The people we are trying to protect our clients from are tech savvy and they figure out what we're doing. This was a case where he had identified what city she was in, where she was hiding, where we had her safe place to stay. And he started sending her pictures of his uh, tickets to showing that he was getting ready to hop on a plane and he's going to come find her. And what we did was I started spoofing messages to his cell phone from the airline that I could see on his ticket saying that his flight just kept getting delayed, kept getting delayed. And I kept giving him constant updates so he wouldn't go check. And I basically made him sit in a hotel room waiting for his flight to get closer to the time where it leaves. By the time he showed up at the airport to catch his 5 p.m. flight, he discovered it actually really did leave at noon. There was no delay. That bought me 24 hours. Have you ever tested a client to see if they're sticking to the plan, making sure they haven't slipped? Uh, I had one not too long ago. It was a woman who, she did everything right. She was a rock star and all this, and it was a couple of years after she had completely rebooted. She had a private place, nothing in her name, and I, I had written consent from her to do whatever I wanted to do. I didn't have to hold anything back. Michael did a little research and figured out that his client had recently attended a conference. I created a nice thank you card from that conference and I gave her a gift card. It was basically a thank you for attending. This is a gift card. We'd love to see you next year. And I sent that to her work, which would be a public thing. So eventually she gets this envelope. It's got a thank you card in it. The conference seems familiar and it's got a gift card because I was counting on her using the gift card. She started using it every day to get her coffee at the coffee place really close to her home. So that kind of gave me an idea of where she would live. T to be clear, I already know where she lives, but that helps me publicly say now i have this i've got a copy of the back of her gift card which gives me a code and a website i can go look at all of her transactions so basically i started watching all of her transactions in real time on this gift card 
watched her buying the coffee every day. It shows me the location. I saw that she did this thing with this pest management company. I contacted the pest management company and said, hey, my name's Michael. I run the business account for whatever business I made up. I have a receipt from you guys and I have a credit card number you put it on, but I, I don't know which property that was. If I give you the sales number, which I could see on the gift card history. Could you tell me which of our properties this was for? And once I gave her that number and I gave her the card number, she was able to look it up and she gave me the address of my victim. A stalker would do the exact same thing. So that allowed us to have a conversation about if you get an unsolicited gift card, especially from me, know that I'm watching everywhere you spend it. And we only covered a fraction of the things that you do for your clients, but where can people find you and learn more about this lifestyle? Uh, you can go to my website, intelltechniques.com. I put myself out there just enough to keep the business alive. Next time on Pretend. We have one more episode with Michael Basil, and this one's a little different because we talked about how to disappear. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not a celebrity, I'm not a judge, I'm not a victim, why would I need to disappear? Well, I'll give you a good reason. We're gonna talk to an identity thief and see exactly how he steals people's information. That's next time on Pretend. Creative Babble.